Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis. And I'm Nam Kiwanuka. Colin, I feel like a weight has been lifted off my shoulders because the weather outside is so amazing. It's beautiful out there. I went for a bike ride the other day. It was it was tremendous. I would like to say I did that, but I did <laughs> sit outside under the sun. That's activity, right? <laughs> uh, no, it's not. I'm sorry. You know what you should try doing outside is yoga. Yoga? I Yeah, yeah actually, I should do that because um, it's something the kids actually like doing. So oh, maybe we'll do that go. together later. Awesome. So what documentary are we looking at today? Today we're going to be looking at Subjects of Desire, which explores the history of beauty standards and the shift towards recognizing black women aesthetics. The most disrespected person in America is the black woman. The most unprotected person in America is the black woman. What I love about this Black America pageant is it creates a space for us to continue to celebrate black beauty unapologetically. I wanted to be a part of the Miss Black America pageant. I needed to feel as though I mattered and my voice mattered. Little white kids would always comment on your hair. Oh, it's so big. You look like a lion. You know, like you look like an animal. No one else says that to anybody else. In the realm of beauty, black has to be minimized. People tell me, all right, when you going straight your hair, your hair, your hair, your hair. When you don't love yourself, you don't love anything. You know, one thing I liked about this conversation you had is just how our beauty standards are kind of informed by popular culture and how celebrities can, you know, reinforce what is and isn't considered beautiful. And, you know, growing up, I can't tell you just how few black women I saw in movies and magazines, on TV. And, you know, it's it's unfortunate because obviously pop culture influences how we look at each other and see ourselves. And if if you only see one beauty standard represented over and over again, I think it has a, a pretty negative impact. Oh, yeah, it definitely does. And I, I, I dare you to have a conversation with any black woman who didn't, when they were younger, wear a towel over their head. <laughs> Eddie Murphy had a skit back in the day <laughs> where you have this towel on your head and you're, you're pretending to have like long, flowy, straight hair. Um, and it really does change how you see yourself in the world when you can't see anyone that looks like you on TV and magazines, uh, even on the local news. I mean, things have changed a lot since I was a little girl. Um, so we spoke with Jen Holness, who directed the documentary Subjects of Desire, um, about why she wanted to do this film, the role the media played in the past in creating these stereotypes of black women and the impacts of these racist caricatures on black women and young girls, and how the women in this documentary are challenging how we understand beauty standards. Stay with us. Jennifer Holness, welcome to the podcast. I uh, really enjoyed this documentary. Your doc, Subjects of Desire, begins by exploring the history of American beauty pageants. How have they historically been defined um, when it, we talk about what is beautiful and what is not? Well, what you have to think about is that uh, up until maybe the last decade or so, beauty pageants have been like, like essential 
for in the conversation about beauty. You know, women uh, grew up, girls grew up wanting to be in pageants. Pageants defined femininity, defined beauty. And so here's the thing, until 1968, though, black women were historically uh, not allowed on the stages, uh, national beauty stages. So what that meant was, um, you know, imagine that the, the biggest cultural thing for women and girls at one point were beauty pageants and never seen someone that looks like yourself on those stages. So um, in 1968, the Miss Black America pageant uh, was created and it was a political uh, act. It was a political act to say black women were beauty, beautiful. And it was a part of that, you know, black power movement. And so I really, in, in, in trying to tell the story of, of black women in beauty, I really wanted to go to a place where it, um, that understood the power of beauty and that um, it was a political stance to actually, you know, fight for black women and their beauty. How is it political? Well, I think polit politics to me is about power and power dynamics. And I think that right now we're at a time where women have really made incredible advancements um, in terms of um, economic opportunities, educational opportunities, particularly in North America and in Europe. So why is beauty that, why is a pageant or why is beauty powerful? Well, here's the thing. Black women have been outside the standards of beauty. And I think if you look at the history, that has meant that they have had to operate in a place where they're unprotected, they had to operate in a place where they weren't seen. And so if women are defined in, to some extent, whether we like it or not, by their beauty, and you're not um, embraced in the, in the standards, then that means that you, you lack power in that situation. You know, black women go into a situation and they are not believed, they're unprotected. There's, there's a whole bunch of narratives that are put onto black women because they don't have the, essentially the power behind beauty um, or the power that beauty affords. Um, I thought it was interesting too in the documentary that you pointed out that in 1968, when that pageant for uh, black women was created, where in that year, white women were actually uh, protesting against uh, beauty pageants, saying that uh, they wanted to be seen uh, for more than just their looks and their bodies. Well, so that's what the irony is. So in 1968, um, when the Black uh, Miss Black America pageant was created, um, on the night of that pageant, the inaugural uh, event, across the street that same day, uh, the largest feminist protest at the time in America happened. And this is the protest that we've all heard about where women were, quote unquote, burning bras. And, and they were, in fact, predominantly white women, they were protesting uh, the fact that women should be valued for their abilities, not for their looks. And so the irony is that across the street, there were black women and black men, in fact, protesting and saying, black women are beautiful and they should be in some ways upheld for their beauty. And again, I think it's because there is a real understanding. We, we pretend that beauty doesn't matter. And yet we know that that is partly how women have, you know, are defined. And historically, that was almost 
entirely how women were defined, right? And so again, if you are not, you know, uh, in that standard, in that definition, if you don't fit, if you don't make the grade, well, what does that mean? Where do you, you know, what are the values that, that are going to be given to you? What are the perks that's going to be afforded to you? Where are you going to get in? How are you going to make that mark? Um, and so, um, so I think that that history, though, uh, is still with us because when I made this film, you know, I actually thought some of the things I went through as a little kid growing up in Canada, not seeing myself on beauty stages, I actually thought that I you know, my kids would be well past it, that they would be, you know, um, they, they would feel, they would understand how wonderful and beautiful they are, uh, you know, outside of everything else, you know, and of course, they were certainly smart, right? You know, that was really important to us as black folks, as Caribbean, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, background, that was really, really important. And, and when I started making the film, it was a real shock to me to realize that, a whole bunch of the stuff that I went through, a lot of what I felt growing up, they were feeling that too. And so that's why I just think you couldn't dismiss this. You shouldn't dismiss this, that this was really important. And the, and the, and the funny thing is, in making the film, I cannot tell you how many women have come to me and said how, impact, how they've been impacted by this film. I've had women cry and tell me that their whole lives, that they're seeing themselves in a certain way and they didn't understand the narratives that existed, that create, helped to create the way they saw themselves. And, and in the actual fact that this film helped to pinpoint and reveal the source of some of this. And so that to me has been really important to hear um, because, you know, you know, I think it's uncomfortable for us to say that we value beauty, we, you know, especially as women, you know, we're always, we're now, and right now we're trying to say that the only thing that matters, you know, or, you know, is, is, uh, is our, um, our, you know, our ability. How smart someone is, right? Yes, exactly. And then, but we're just pretending, I think, in many ways, um, that, um, that other part is, is almost as, is, is almost as important. It isn't as important, but I think it's almost as important. But I also think at one time it was actually more important. Well, I mean, if you look at any commercials, <laughs> most commercials are talking about how you can make yourself better or, you know, um, you know. but uh, a few years ago in 2019, Miss Universe, Miss World, Miss USA, Miss Teen USA and Miss America, uh, the pageants were all won by black women. Why was that a w watershed moment? Well, gee whiz, I mean, okay, I think if you go back in the history of beauty pageants, you will see there are many, many years, in fact, most of them, where if you looked across the spectrum, um, you know, um, a white, white, um, you know, a white female w would have won those pageants. So all five of them would have been won by, you know, the, you know, sort of the standard uh, beauty, you know, beauty standard within the beauty standard. So I think that First of all, it's never happened that uh, uh, black women across the board, um, never. And, you know, even until maybe a decade ago, it was rare to have, a, you know, a black woman win any of those pageants. And I just, and I just thought, does, what does this mean? You know, does this mean that we've arrived? You know, is this, um, it, it just, it, it, I just felt like it was, you had to stop and acknowledge that moment. 
And I have actually never been a part of beauty uh, contests. I've never tried. I've never thought this was something that was, it was never really something important to me. But in spending time with women who, um, the, you know, the black women from the Miss Black America pageant in 2018, in spending time with them, I realized how incredibly smart they were, how tough they were, how resilient they were. I mean, for heaven's sakes, these ladies had to wear heels and dance and rehearse day after day. I got to tell you, I can't even put the on heels. the heels. I can't even put on a pair of heels anymore. I've had three kids. Like when I put on a pair of heels, it comes off within five minutes. The second I sit down and, and I'm just saying that the toughness, but also they were so smart. They had so much going on with them. But also not to interrupt you, but to think when you apply to these pageants, because it is, it seems like a very insulated world, but to have the confidence to apply to be in those pageants when the world is telling you that you need to change your nose, you need to change your hair, you need to change the color of your skin. I mean, this uh, the skin bleach industry is huge. Um, but then for them to have that confidence to say, I'm going to enter this, uh, this place that tells me I don't belong. And then for all of those women to win all those pageants um, at the same time. I know social media went crazy. Yeah, and it should have been celebrated, and it was celebrated. And so, you know, you ask why it was a watershed moment. It, it was a watershed moment because it was. It's because it's never happened before, and it's because the talent, the beauty, um, the resilience, um, you know, the fortitude, and the bravery of these women were being applauded and uplifted. And so I also, I, to, to be honest, when it happened, I remember when the first happened, I said, okay, whatever. And the second, I thought, Okay, whatever. And then the third, I'm like, dang, this is making it into the film. And then the th the fourth and then the fifth, I was like, okay, this is my opening in my film. <laughs> to go back to, you know, when we talk about the Miss America beauty contest, uh, let's talk about some of the women that you follow. Because at one point, one of them says, black women have historically been denied the power of beauty. And I think it was intentional. Um, when you think about that statement, in what ways was it intentional? Well, okay. When you look at the stereotypes like the Mammy, the Jezebel, and the Sapphire, these stereotypes that are among us right now, um, when you look at uh, commercials, the way casting happens, you know, uh, what we, the products, how they're sold to us, these stereotypes have been so ingrained and, and interwoven into um, narratives that we live with, we, we haven't even questioned them. So, but then when you go back, and this is what I wanted to do in the film, when you go back and look at the origin of the Mammy stereotype, the fact that that stereotype came about after slavery was over, you know, um, when, when the, you know, the South and America wanted to portray a more gentle version of slavery. So it wasn't like these, that black women, for example, were living these horrible lives. No, they were um, these older, unattractive, fat black women who were jolly and they might have been sassy, but they took care of you. And that was the place of black women to take care of you. Okay. And so if you look at casting, I mean, even, you know, again, I, I raise it, you know, and it's unfortunate, but, you know, books like The Help that was so wildly popular, never questioned, right? And again, it was a message, a very clear message that the dominant culture preferred their black women 
in a subservient position, assisting and helping them. Okay. In the position of service to the point where it didn't even matter if that black woman had children. And again, it doesn't matter if we have children or what we have to do. Our role, even in a, in a, even in a corporate environment, uh, when a black woman, for example, um, speaks her mind, is in fact not willing to take on that service role of taking care of everyone in the office, being the person who does what people says and, you know, and, and maybe with a little sass to keep it interesting. Um, when a black woman doesn't feel, fulfill that role, then she is, in fact, a sapphire, an angry black woman. And I can't tell you how many professional women across the board, no matter what, have come across the circumstances where they were just being, you know, straight. They were being clear. They weren't angry in actual fact. They were just expressing what they believed. And that was, and that was, and has been perceived as a threat, as threatening, as um, angry, as um, un, 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 you know, uncooperative, uh, as um, just as negative. And, um, and I think almost every single girl I interviewed, every single person I interviewed in the pageant, and these were young women, they all had experiences with this. Myself as a black woman who has worked as in the industry for a number of years, I've had experiences with this, you know? And so, so that's one of the narratives. And that narrative was created because it wanted to silence us. So if you are, you know, vocal, then you're angry. And then, so what don't you want to be? You don't want to, you don't want to make a fuss. You don't want to disrupt. You don't want to be the, the angry person. So what are you going to do? Now you're going to be silent, right? So if you can't serve, you're going to be silent. And, you know, that is really something that we all in the corporate world have to grapple with to some extent. And then the last stereotype that's been really a part of us, and I think in some ways has been so embraced, it's become who black women are. And that is sort of this sexualized idea of what a black woman is, you know? And, um, you know, I, I, it was, I didn't put this in the film, but women talk about dating, going on dating at black women. And oftentimes people come at them with, oh, you're hot chocolate, I can't wait to, you know, all this sort of like this very sexual um, connotations, very sexual conversations with them, uh, you know, uh, versus like trying to get to know them as individuals. It's like, I want to have sex with you because the idea of this uh, hypersexual, erotic black woman. And that has, as you can see, has really been amped up in our own community. You know, and that, by the way, and that narrative was created essentially to negate the fact that white men were, in fact, raping black women in, ma in a mass scale. And so it wasn't their fault. It was, you know, this over-sexualized black woman. And so that has filtered down and down and down. And now I think sometimes, you know, black women don't question why they sometimes feel the need to only express themselves in a sexual way. Before we're even born, 
People have an idea of how we should act, when we should act a certain way, and how we go about things. So if I already am born into a box, you're not giving me any freedom to self-identify of who I am. You're not giving me any freedom to evolve. You're just keeping me in that box. Um, you know, you, you went through those, um, the Mammy, uh, Sapphire, and Jezebel, and in the documentary, um, you talk about how these are the stereotypes that are associated with Black women, and they those stereotypes have been essentially shaped by the media. Um, you know, when we do talk about the Jezebel, which one you just mentioned, we get into, I don't want to, you know, I used to work in the music industry, and in the documentary, you also touch on it. Um, how does this stereotype affect the kind of entertainment uh, Black women can participate in within society? Well, it's very narrow. So this is the problem. It's very, very narrow. So if you don't fit that sexy, over-sexualized Jezebel, then oftentimes you're not given the same opportunities. Indy Irie, who's in the film, actually spoke about when she, she was in her early parts in her career, because she's never been a Jezebel. She's always been sort of a, this beautiful black woman who um, tried to express herself in song, you know, her inner thoughts. And so she's never really been this over-sexualized person. But she, she, she talks about the fact that you, it, it's almost the only way for black women to achieve success in the music industry. You know, and if you actually look around, there are very few black artists, female artists that uh, have, have managed to be successful in the, in the, in the recent decade without overtly sexual um, presence. I'm not the average girl from your video and I ain't built like a supermodel, but I learned to love myself unconditionally because I am a queen. I'm not the average girl from your video. My worth is not determined by the price of my clothes. No matter what I'm wearing, I will always be in the RE. It's so funny to sing that because it feels like a song from, a, from my youth. And so that, here's the thing. Black women should embrace their sexuality in completely how, how they, you know, how they feel. But I don't believe that every black woman who can sing is overtly sexual or has to be overtly sexual. You know, where is the jewel of, you know, our community? Where, you know, there's so many different versions that I think that white, uh, white female singers can have, you know, like, um, and, and why is it then in the black community, it, it, it really has to sort of fall in the, the Megan, the, you know, um, the Megan, Megan Stallion, Stallion, who yeah. I happen to love. And yeah. I am, in fact, um, uh, uh, you know, I'm a member of the Beehive or the Bayhive. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love these women. I love, you know, their expressive nature. But I just don't think that every single Black woman has to express themselves that way to be successful, you know? And that's some of the problems with this stereotype. And so we don't get that range, you know, and also, you know, uh, the colorism element of it is, is, is really, really troubling, <laughs> you know? Yeah, we, I want to talk more about the colorism, but I wanted to just um, follow up um, one more question with the Sapphire, because it's pointed out in the documentary that um, 
uh, being angry is something black women are often accused of being. And in the documentary, you see examples of Julie Black um, from CBC Reads and uh, Michelle Obama, who has been accused of being radically angry. I'm not sure what that is, but she's been accused of being radically angry at times. Why is this image of black women so pervasive? Like I said, that was to silence us. How better to silence a powerful voice who is calm and smart and, you know, wants something and is trying to achieve something that stands in opposition to your point? How, how easier can it be to just tell them that they're angry? And it's, it's as if my mom, grandmother, my nieces, my sisters, my every black woman, girl, child that I've ever known, experienced directly or indirectly, it's like they were all sitting on my shoulders, every last one of them. And I was able to respond. And they all, you know, so, and so anything that they say or do will just be perceived as angry. So if, they, if they're like, what are you talking about? You know, you have a problem. They'd be like, you see, that's an example of your anger. So how do you silence a black woman? You silence her by taking away her power, by taking away her voice. And in many situations, historically, our voice is all we've had. What I love about Julie and about uh, Mrs. Obama um, um, is that, I should say Michelle Obama. <laughs> what I love about <laughs> Michelle Obama is that in spite of what was tr- what the media tried to do, in spite of what how people try to position them, they use their voice regardless. You know, uh, Michelle Obama, you know, she has been involved in so many powerful movements to uplift and support black women and girls. Um, she has, you know, and, and of course, black women and girls, but also women and girls in general. She has been an example of elegance and smarts. And, um, and it's just, it's laughable, actually. It, it exposes itself. It does expose itself, but I always find, you know, even her famous line, when they go low, we go high. And even just watching the interaction with Julie and Jeannie Becker on CBC Reads, it kind of feels like you're not allowed to have, like, uh, to own, to have a full range of emotion, especially in situations where you're being uh, perceived to be something that you're not. You always have to kind of, like, watch your tone or uh, be, you know, you can't be angry. Um, And I kind of find... And I think you do, you do touch on it on the documentary that you can't be your full self because you know you have an understanding of all these perceptions about who you are already. Absolutely, it's the same thing with the you know with, with the Jezebel. You know, there's not a full range of um, uh, personalities that you can present, and and with the with the sapphire, there's not a range of emotions that you can express. And again. You know, one of the things that Brittany Lewis says in the film is, why shouldn't we be angry? Why can't we be angry? Can't we not be angry at the things that are problematic? Like, so that's so, so it's it's not to say, she's she's just saying, that's one range in the emotional wheel that we should be able to express and not live in fear that it's going to be perceived in, in a way that will undermine you, you know? Um, 
so it, look, I mean, I, I don't know, uh, like you have to be very careful sometimes there are times, I mean, I think I'm, I think part of my, um, part of the reason why I've been able to be successful in this industry is because I tend to be a bubbly person, you know, and, <laughs> and that, that, so, uh, so, so maybe sometimes that is embraced, but I got to tell you, I, t- I, I have had to, you know, when I, when I, when I have a serious face or when I feel like mm, I'm not liking something, I, it's like, there's this desire for me to always be in this bubbly you know, frame of mind because people are just losing their, they just lose their mind. Like, what's, what's Jen thinking? Oh my God, she's scared. I'm like, oh my God, I'm literally just trying to say, I don't like this thing and that's okay. So let's figure out, you know, how to get it done or something. So it's, it's very limiting. And we've also, to be honest, we've, we've embraced it too, in the sense, I mean, look, when I think about Sanford and Son, which I love, and I use that reference because we all grew up watching shows like that and loving those shows, but did not realize that Aunt Esther had no internal life. She had no actual love, no family. There was no people she connected with. And so all we saw was one note from Aunt Esther, and it was to—it was a disservice. It was a disservice to Black women. You know, the doc features a number of conversations between these, um, uh, about, with women who are going in the, uh, the beauty pageant. And you also have high profile women like India Ari, who've mentioned in Julie Black and Amanda Paris. And you also speak to a group of young women who talk about everything from colorism, hair, and stereotypes. As a director, when you, when did you start to see clear themes arising from these conversations? Well, I actually think, to be honest, I think it was as a black woman, I started to see those themes and I decided to direct a film around it because I could see those themes. Growing up, I, like I said, you know, it was a time when there wasn't this, you know, plethora of black, female, awesome women to, to look up to. And, um, you know, any like any black woman who did anything at all, you were like, oh my God, there, oh my God, it feels like I can touch you. You're almost like me. In fact, I actually would even envision dark-haired white women as connected to me because there was just no one. <laughs> so it's like, oh, you know, in Charlie's Angel, Angel, oh, she has dark hair. I'm like Sabrina, you know, like... <laughs> So, uh, and so growing up, always feeling like I was outside of this, these standards, these norms, the women that were valued and put into um, roles and places that I would love to see myself into. Um, I, 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 those connections were clear to me, but it was when I had my daughters and as when they, you know, as teenagers, when they started to express um, both the angst and joy of being a black girl, and in my case, in my family's case, dark-skinned black girls in the world, then I, 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 I really started to put together that there is something bigger around us. There's something bigger. It's not this benign thing. You know, it's not, it's not just, oh, just how things are. You know, and when you actually go back and you peel away the layers because that's what I didn't do uh, before. 
the documentary, making the documentary allowed me to peel back the layers and try to and find the connections. And when you look at the connection, you can't deny them. Yeah, you can't. Um, I there was moments in the documentary where I felt um, extremely emotional, and I'm saying this as a, a light skinned um, black woman. And I was surprised to find out that you know we we shy we tend to not talk about um, colorism, um, and in the documentary you do talk about it. And I was surprised to um, find out that you know the the brown paper bag test something that the and I know black communities are not a monolith but um this was something that was kind of embraced within the I don't know if that's the right word but you know um you talk about the comb test where black women were not allowed to join a church if they couldn't pass a comb through their hair and watching this I was kind of like you know how did that come to be it's as if we uh, um adopted um these things that were harming the communities um, and then we continued to harm ourselves. Um, I don't know if that's the right, right way to perceive it. What would you say? Yeah, it's, these are all very nuanced things, but you're, you're absolutely correct. So here is what people don't think about. Coming out of slavery, there was a very large per- percentage of the black people in America and in the Caribbean that were the sons and daughters of the slave masters, right? And what that meant was that in some situations, when slave master died, they would give their children freedom. And they would, in some situations, they would educate their children. And in many situations, they put their children in the homes where it would be a kinder, better place. So those children were, had greater access to education uh, and often freedom legitimate freedom, papers. So now here you are in slavery and you're black because that one thirty-fourth rule, one drop of blood, you know, literally seals your fate and your fate is pretty grim in these times, right? Anyone white could do almost anything to you and there would be no repercussions. So So what does that mean? Well, even those who are fighting for the uh, emancipation of black people, they start to see themselves as better and as um, elevated, certainly more more intellectual. Um, And so that is how and why, um, uh, and they married amongst themselves. It It was rarer for... Uh, for example, uh, lighter-skinned folks to marry darker-skinned folks unless there was a big scandal. It was actually a big scandal. Why were they doing this? You wanted to lighten. And so if you, and if you go in the South, you, you know, it's New Orleans, these kinds of places, that was sort of the standards. And so what that also meant was that then you started to create these categories, right? So yes, because the quote-unquote like middle class, or, you know, blacks, they often were fairer complected, right? And, and, and when they did marry a darker complected person, um, it was because that person was very, very successful. And so, so then you would have church events and, uh, you know, elegant events. And, and guess what? You wanted to keep, you wanted to keep your children 
in the same circle. You want to have your children marry within that circle. So those were, I mean, it's, it's a shameful history in that sense, but how can you deny it? I mean, like you, you, the opportunities, I mean, look, white folks created a situation where black people, black men could not get work. There was a narrative that the only job that was fitting for a black man was one that a white man did not want. So these things, how could this trauma not impact you wanting to be elevated, wanting to get closer to where there were more opportunities? Yeah. Uh, we only have a few minutes. We only have a few minutes left, and I have a few more questions to ask you. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, I could talk to you for like a day on this. Um, you know, uh, one interesting person you speak to in the documentary that might surprise people is Rachel uh, Dolazal. Why did you talk to her for this documentary? Yeah, that seems to be controversial. Um, <laughs> I wanted to talk to Rachel Dolazal because. Um, we're just talking about light skin um, privilege to some extent. And and one of the things that happened at this time and what I was aware of is very light skinned people passing for white. And we in our community, in my community, uh, I've known this and, you know, uh, one family member, you know, all of this kind of stuff. But nobody blamed them. It's not a thing, but it's just what happens. And it happened because, again, it was its opportunity, its livelihood is how you live a life. So now, for the first time in my life, I find out that there has been a white woman who has lived as black for 10 years, who values blackness so much that she takes this on, when in, in fact, passing has always been the other way around as far as I know. I just felt like, how could we talk about black women being outside of the standards of beauty and the standards of beauty being white? And here we had a white lady who had all the features, blonde hair, green eyes, and in some ways rejected that to, to live the life as black. How? How could you not <laughs> have this as a part of the conversation? You know, and I, and I know black women were, some black women are, are angry about it, um, but I think most people who've seen the film understand why she's in the film, why that she was an important part of the conversation. Um, you do speak with a number of other experts in the documentary. Uh, I don't know if you want to share what their perspectives were on her self-identification. Well, Brittany Lewis, who is a PhD candidate and a beauty pageant queen um, and was a 2017 winner of Miss Black America pageant. She's like, she's like, no, <laughs> she's like, um, her feeling is that, you know, um, this is not your space that you are, you're taking from us. Um, Dr. Cheryl Thompson, who's wonderful, who I have a, um, I have a, a conversation with, a big ideas conversation with tomorrow, in fact, she was like, I don't have a problem with her loving blackness and even, you know, choosing to, to live that way. But um, you, are, you are white, as far as she's concerned, and you have to come from that point of view. I'm white, but I'm choosing to, and you're letting people know. And so you're not passing, you're just choosing to be in this space, whatever that means. So, you know, so th that's a different range. India Irie felt a great deal of sympathy for her. She understood that she, that obviously Rachel Dolezal saw the beauty and sees the beauty in blackness. So there's a range. And I wanted to share that range with the audience. 
Well, you know, we talked about this at the very top of the interview. Um, there's been a shift away from beauty being the image of a white woman with blonde hair to black is beautiful. But this shift has seen some problematic things arise from it. For example, Kim Kardashian uh, will wear cornrows and the media will go wild. Uh, they might say she discovered cornrows <laughs> and they'll <laughs> celebrate her. But when a black woman wears them, uh, it's considered to be unprofessional. At one point in the documentary, one of the young women you speak to um, says, growing up, um, you want to be white and it ruins you. So you grow up and the people you wanted to be want to be you. Um, and that ruins you part just kind of, uh, broke my heart. Um, you know, what in the documentary, um, it was referred to as black fishing. So what is black fishing and why is it problematic? Oh, geez. Black fishing is actually, I think more problematic than what Rachel, uh, represents. Um, because it's essentially um, white women and girls who uh, love the aesthetics of certain aesthetics of blackness, and they create through makeup and 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 tricks and collagen and even fillers and and surgery, they create a look that um, is what I would say biracial, and that biracial look incidentally is I, I call it the Beyonce look. You know, she's she's in fact two black parents, but she's very light skinned. And that and that look, that Rihanna look, um, is the ambiguous, is, like you don't know, you what, know what, they what they are. They are. Exactly. Yeah. And that's black fishing because it's white women who are doing this and people have been mistaking them for being biracial. And here's the problem with it though. Um they can and and do wash it off and um and and you know go on about their lives when they're when they need to and when they're ready and ironically some of these girls have gotten um modeling contracts they've got you know they have great instagram presence so they're economically benefiting from um presenting a look that is um you know historically based on the one drop american rule is black you know now it's a very interesting thing because i think um biracial is now becoming something that you, you can be biracial, whereas I think before, no matter how mixed you were, if you showed black, you were just considered black. I mean, it's hard for me to, to you know, I think I, I saw the shift uh, around uh, President Obama, so whereby, you know, suddenly he was, he's a black man, but he's also a biracial man. And that that narrative has become much, much clearer, whereas before, I think, like all the people around me growing up, they they were just thrown in. We would say they were light skinned, or we would say they were pretty, or some such thing. But they were just black people, right? And so now here you have white folks who who want this, and it didn't end up happening ha happening in the documentary. But um, I reached out to a friend of mine who has a daughter. She's blonde, my friend, blonde with blue eyes. Her daughter's blonde with blue eyes, and her daughter, she said, spends two hours curling and crimping her hair to make it look like yours and mine. And her daughter has been very angry with her for not having the features that she wants, like a bigger booty um, and, and this kind of a thing. And I had invited her to come on the film, but she didn't want to speak, you know, as a white young white girl, it might have been damaging to her. And I understood why she ultimately, you know, chose not to be in the film. But in Toronto, <laughs> you know, there are young white girls who are, you know, presenting this aesthetic because it is attractive to them. So yeah, beauty is changing, you know, um, and it has changed. Let's be real. I mean, um, however 
you say it, the, 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 the body type of Kim Kardashian, I mean, look, slim black women, you know, we call it slim thick, you know, it's like small waist, you know, big booty, <laughs> a little Jeez, bit of I top. can never fit you properly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <Just> saying. <laughs> so that, that is not necessarily, um, you know, the standard European body type, which tends to be more straight down the center, you know, and that kind of a thing. And even, um, things like a physically fit body. Now, you know, we have everyone going to the gym, but let me tell you, that is that is a, a more natural black female body. And in the past, when I was growing up, having a slim body with musculature was not seen as cute at all. It was that mm. wan, like you had no muscle tone. You know what I'm saying? You're gonna, you know, you look like you're about to starve. I mean, Twiggy, it's like, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. saying? <laughs> so yeah, it's, like MAGA. Yes, in Jamaica, it's like the Maga dog, and here, and you know, and so that 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 you know that that papal is now like the rage, and it's so it. I love that my booty is in. I'm like, what? It is actually um, interesting. But the, the the sad part, of course, is that when white women have that, it's much more valued, as you can see with, you know, Kim and her sisters and, you know, um, you know, Kylie, I mean, the lips, I mean, the, the change in, you know, like those kinds of things. Right. And I don't know if you grew up with this or not, but like my lips, people used to laugh at them. They're like, they're so thick. Yeah. They're so big. And I used to, uh, one of my uh, aunties used to hit me in my mouth, um, because she thought that I was taking out my lip because they wanted it to be more like this. So they would hit it. But again, it, I think it's like, uh, it speaks to what we were talking about where when you're trying to survive in a system, but then you cause more harm to your own community um, because, you know, uh, it's just the way the system is built. But, you know, when you, what do you want people to walk away with when they watch this documentary? Well, I, I, I hope that, um, well, first of all, with black women, I really want them to understand that um, these systems are a part of what has been um, uh, writing a certain narrative that you've had to fit into. And so in understanding that, to just just dispel them, to, to challenge them, to know that they are wonderful and beautiful in their own right, and they don't need, uh, you know, that exterior uh, ideals to, to be that to embrace all they are. So that is it for black women on that side. And then for the for for white women and and other groups, other races, other um ethnic um women, I, I want them to really understand that um that they have in some ways been not really seen us that they have been influenced by these ideas that are not ours, that don't really represent and reflect us. And I want them to be kinder and more compassionate and to, um, to really um, reach out to be allies with black women. I think it's been historically easier for um, white women, for example, to even be allies with black men, you know? Um, you, you know, I mean, I have a, I have a robust group of friends and that include wh white women, um, for sure. Uh, in, in fact, some of my very best friends are, are white. <laughs> I love that. Some of my best friends are white. 
we all know what that is. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, but but I can honestly say that um, it's been I've had to teach them to understand who I am and and that and and what I'm what I stand for and why it's important. And so I hope this film will shorten that conversation. You know, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. Um, congratulations on a wonderful documentary. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> and that's the podcast. Look for subjects of desire on the film festival circuit. And while you may have to wait for a little bit, TVO will be airing the documentary early next spring. While you're here, why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us? It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Namshine, all one word. And you can follow me at Colin Ellis 81 Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, senior producer Katie O'Connor, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Halliwell, and executive producer Laurie Few. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next screening. <laughs>